taking a bit of a risk here. The song you're hearing is Coquette, written by John Green, recorded in 1928. So basically yesterday, the last time I started the podcast with a song that is less than 100 years old, I got Japan canceled because the copyright laws in Japan require that a song be 100 years old. Not 90 years like in the U.S., so I'm running the very real risk of this episode being yanked from Podcast World in Japan, where I'm huge, of course. They love my takes on American politics. And, of course, I'm sure the song Coquette by John Green, as recorded in 1928, is huge right now in Japan. I'm sure you cannot walk into a cat cafe or a robot brothel, or any other establishment you might walk into in Japan. That's probably going to be one of those two. Without hearing Coquette by John Green. But I wanted to play this song because I want to talk about swashbuckler films. As part of my judging people from the past by the standards of today in a practice that could no way come back to haunt me series, I want to talk about swashbuckler films because those were definitely the equivalent of the biggest thing of today, superhero movies. Superhero movies are the big thing of today. Their silent film era equivalent is definitely the swashbuckler film. Swashbuckler films, they were big in Hollywood starting in the 20s. They continued to be big all through the 50s. They almost always include swordplay. It can be a Robin Hood film, a pirate movie. The Zorro films that I did two episodes back, those can definitely be counted. They were very big business for a very long time, and the formula is really simple. There is a good guy, there is a bad guy. The bad guy does something bad, and then the good guy kicks his ass. And the fun comes in the exact how the ass-kicking is performed. So very much like superhero movies, like you know the superhero's gonna win, but how he gets there is the entertaining part. The fun is in the how. Today, uh, the fun comes from $100 million worth of CGI. In the 1920s, the fun would have come from, you know, jumping over a barrel with a sword. Different time, different standard. But I watched one of the first big swashbuckler films, which was 1921's The Three Musketeers, starring, hey, Douglas Fairbanks, the guy we talked about recently. 1921's The Three Musketeers should have been called The One Musketeer and His Two Inconsequential Friends, because let me tell you, Douglas Fairbanks is damn near the only guy in this movie. (laughs) The other two musketeers barely deserve to be called sidekicks. But Douglas Fairbanks was the big movie star, so of course he got all the screen time. And what struck me about this movie was the score. The score in this silent film was, it was really doing some heavy lifting. So I want to talk about film scores. And of course, I'm a writer, so... I always think that writers are the unsung heroes who should be given much, much more money. But honestly, there are two other jobs in entertainment that I think deserve way, way, way more credit. The first is editors. The second is the people who do the music. Music, in my opinion, can do just an enormous amount to drive a TV show or movie. Writers talk about world a lot, right? We like to create a world. And you can either spend 10 minutes of screen time establishing a world, you know, who lives there, what it's like, what's the vibe is, is there danger, is it peaceful? Or you can play like 20 seconds of music and people will go, oh, I get it. Yeah, I get it. 
One of the best examples of this, Star Wars. How great is the John Williams Star Wars theme? In my opinion, that is a full-on symphonic masterpiece. My wife and I, on the 4th of July, we will watch the fireworks on TV, turn off the volume, turn on the John Williams Star Wars score. I recommend you try that. <laughs> it really fits. So the importance of music to movies can probably not be overstated. I learned that in the silent film era, they were just figuring out, oh yeah, we should actually have dedicated music to go with this movie. Because it started with just, uh, there's a movie, play like a piano or something. So that it's not just dead air and coughs from people dying of TB. They would just play piano, and then there were sheet cues. The studio would send out a sheet to the movie house saying, hey, in this part, play like somber music, in this part, play soaring music. And then finally they took the next step and started writing the music themselves and sending it out with the film. And there's only one person on the Hollywood Walk of Fame that I can find that maybe had anything to do with that. And I say maybe because he started composing music for films in 1930, which is just, it's just the beginning of the talkie era. I think he maybe missed the silent film era entirely. I can't tell, but he did have a long career composing music for movies, won four Academy Awards, and that guy's name was John Green. Not the guy who wrote A Fault in Our Stars, different John Green. This guy was a Harvard guy, family friends with George Gershwin, which, yes, does make me respect him less. <laughs> because it's like, oh, I get it. All right, yeah, contacts. But still, it doesn't mean he was a bad songwriter. By all accounts, he was a good songwriter. It's easier to be a good songwriter when you've got contacts. But anyway, the point is, he wrote a lot of good songs, including Coquette, which you're listening to, which he wrote when he was a 19-year-old Harvard twerp. That's pretty good. And he also wrote the song Body and Soul. If you ever see a movie where there is a woman in a cabaret, in a ball gown, lying on a grand piano while somebody else plays it, odds are she is singing the song Body and Soul by John Green. So here's to John Green the stand-in for the many anonymous composers of the silent film era and whose star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame is located at 6925 Hollywood Boulevard right between Senior Herpes 24-hour Margarita Bar and the Erotic Lawn Ornament Shop. Hello! I'm Jeff Maurer, and this is the I Might Be Wrong podcast, the 12th-ranked podcast on iTunes in the comedy politics, copyright-expired music, Hollywood miscellanea, and Douglas Fairbanks trivia category. Give me a few more years, I think I can crack the top ten. As always, you can find my stuff at my Substack, which is imightbewrong.substack.com. It is completely free because unlike those hard-ass Japanese music labels that are running all of our lives, I actually want people to experience the stuff that I make. Today's episode is called Green energy subsidies are the future, parentheses. Will they work, though? End parentheses. I wanted to write this one because a major thing just happened in the world of climate change policy, which is also a major thing in the world. And nobody quite planned it. We have made a decision, but it was kind of because it was the only decision we had. 
So acknowledging that fact, I thought, let's talk about it anyway. See what we can tell about whether this is going to work or not. So the article is, green energy subsidies are the future. Will they work, though? Subheading, we've sort of been through this before. So I'm imagining that I'm at a restaurant. And there's a menu, and the menu looks like this. There are only two items. Item number one, linguine, $14.95. Item number two, go fuck yourself, $16.95. I look at this menu, and I start to think, huh, linguine. Yeah. Yeah, linguine sounds pretty good. This is basically what I went through with the green energy subsidies in the just-signed-into-law Inflation Reduction Act. Now, I have opinions, oh, brother, do I have opinions, about the best ways to fight climate change. Unfortunately, those opinions are about as valuable as a condom full of ants, because it has been clear throughout the legislative process that subsidies were the only climate policy on the menu. It is honestly a miracle that anything passed at all. In order to get something passed, it took Larry Summers playing a Ghost of Inflation future type role to coax a Scrooge-esque transformation out of Joe Manchin. So we're lucky to have anything. I am not going to whine about what policy I'd like to see in a world where politics don't exist. Instead, I'm going to eat this linguine and shut the fuck up. Still... It is kind of important that this policy work. That's for a lot of reasons. One of them is because government is supposed to be about producing results and not just about scoring righteous victories over your enemies, though that second thing is clearly what butters most people's toast. But it's also important because the world is watching here. If these subsidies succeed, they will be copied by other countries. If they fail then it is back to square one for climate change wonks. Environmentalists have spent decades vigorously debating the merits of various policies. Meanwhile, our opponents settled on a quite elegant don't-do-jack-shit strategy sometime in the late 80s. So they were first out of the blocks, and we now know the policy of choice at the moment in the United States is subsidies for green energy. We should ask, are they going to work? So the debate, in its most dumbed-down form, which is all this podcast offers, is sometimes framed as a push versus a pull. That is, do you push green technology by offering incentives like subsidies for things like clean energy, or do you pull people kicking and screaming into a green future by punishing pollution with things like a carbon tax. Now, I have long thought that a pull, the carbon tax, would be more effective than a push, the subsidies. And most economists, of which I am not one, I am an economist, not an economist, feel the same way. This is basically because, basically, in a very, very, very small nutshell, like a sunflower seed, Because attaching a price to carbon creates an incentive to reduce emissions any way that you can. On the other hand, a push 
subsidies. A push for green technology is great for that technology, but it kind of neglects everything else. Now, the problem here, as always, is politics. Carbon taxes are about as popular as pubic lice, even in very deep blue parts of the country, places where, in this house we believe signs, <laughs> oh, Jesus, those dot every lawn, and products from radial tires to bandsaws are billed as organic. Even in those places, carbon taxes cannot win popular support. They go down in flames at the ballot box over and over and over again. This has caused policymakers to wonder, okay, what else might work? And what else turns out to basically be locking the green tech industry in a cash grab booth for the next several years and then hoping for the best. Now, I do consider this strategy to be a second best option. But I should mention that recently, Noah Smith made an argument in an article called why renewable subsidies are better than carbon taxes, that renewable subsidies are better than carbon taxes. Now, Noah Smith, in my opinion, is a really smart guy. So when he talks, I listen. And his argument is mainly, mainly that learning by doing is the biggest way that we lower the cost of green technology and that subsidies turbocharge the learning by doing effect. Now, I thought it was a, an interesting point, a good argument. I don't think it totally convinced me. I do think it convinced me to be more optimistic about the subsidies approach than I had been. But if given the choice, and to be clear, I will not be given the choice, <laughs> I would still prefer a carbon tax for some totally pointless reasons, which I will now explain very briefly because it's entirely academic. So my case for a carbon tax. The subsidies in the Inflation Reduction Act leave out the rest of the world. America is great. Hooray for us. Love it or leave it. Remember the main, all that shit. But America is only one part of the global green technology market. A lot of stuff is made elsewhere. There's actually only one American company in the global top 10 in wind turbine manufacturing. There is also only one American company in the top 10 of solar cell makers. A carbon tax would boost demand for green technology no matter where it comes from, no matter which country is making it. Subsidies are fine and dandy for American companies, and I do understand that making the U.S. a bigger player in this field is a feature, not a bug, but the subsidies do unfortunately leave out most of the world. The second issue I have is that subsidies are mostly focused on energy. There is a mostly in that sentence. And look, energy production, it's extremely important, but it's only responsible for about a quarter of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. A tax gives a boost to any strategy that works, whether it is an energy thing or not an energy thing. Whereas these subsidies lean towards energy and don't do much on, for example, transportation or industry. Last thing, I am also not super bullish on the government's ability to invest wisely. I happen to believe <laughs> that the private sector is probably pretty terrible at allocating capital to green technology. I talked about this in an article called Why Theranos Makes Me Worry About the Green Technology Revolution.
So the private sector, admittedly, probably pretty bad, but in my opinion, the government might just find a way to be worse. I have to admit my experience with ethanol is influencing me here. Ethanol, oh, I was at EPA in the mid-2000s. By the mid-2000s, ethanol was a pretty obvious dead end as a solution to climate change, but government support for ethanol persisted way past the point of all logic. Now, look, any investment portfolio is going to include hits and misses, but a government portfolio is hamstrung by the silly non-investment considerations that we, the people, demand to be taken into account. And that is why I believe the government might be even worse than the private sector at finding the good technologies. Now, crucially, and this really is a very important point, None of the arguments I just made matter at all. A carbon tax will not happen. Subsidies for green energy, on the other hand, just did happen. So, will they work? Will they reduce greenhouse gas emissions? And will they do so in a substantial enough way that other countries will copy our strategy? Now, the short answer to will they work is an obvious yeah. The IRA, that's the bill, not the you know terrorist group, devotes $386 billion to energy and climate. It is not possible to spend $386 billion on anything and achieve no results. If you spent $386 billion teaching goats to play Rush songs. Within five years, you'd have a passable version of A Farewell to Kings. There are, of course, limits to what money can do. Building an opera house will not turn your no-talent girlfriend into a star. I'm looking at you, Charles Foster Kane. Similarly, it turns out that no amount of money will convince voters that Michael Bloomberg is not a humorless little wiener. But broadly speaking, as a rule, yeah. $386 billion is going to do something. The question is, how much will it do? And we actually have a point of reference here. The point of reference is the 2009 American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. That law, a.k.a. the stimulus bill, a.k.a. full communism, if you're a Fox News fan, that bill devoted about $92 billion to supporting clean energy technology. It was a major investment. It was a big goddamn deal, and it got mostly ignored, except for that one time that one company in our portfolio, Solyndra, failed, and then conservative media talked about it around the clock for three years. It is hard to assess the effects of a single action, the 2009 subsidies, on a big, complex economy. And yet, the self-hating bastards at the International Institute for Industrial Environmental Economics, or... Ah! Spell it out. That's what the acronym spells. I-I-I-E-E. -E. Ah! Or possibly I-E! I don't know which. Anyway, those poor fuckers tried anyway. In 2015, they published a study. You can find it. It's online. It's called Renewable and Sustainable Energy Reviews. And in my opinion, it's pretty damn good. This study tracked a number of metrics related to green energy and greenhouse gas emissions in the aftermath of the 2009 bill. The report is a couple years old now, but it should still 
capture the bill's primary effects because that bill was a front-loaded stimulus bill whose impacts had mostly happened by 2015. So, good study. I'm going to talk about it for a while here. The headline finding of the study is that the subsidies effects were not too shabby. My words, not theirs. Think tanks employ a lot of people to scrub phrases like not too shabby from their work. But the upshot still is that the ARRA spent heavily on wind and solar and also other stuff, but mostly those two. And in the aftermath of the bill, the U.S. did see a substantial uptick in wind and solar. There was also a corresponding downturn in U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. You can see why these results earned my much-coveted, not-too-shabby label. But let's dig a little deeper. One of the best ways to measure the subsidy's success is by the number of renewable energy patents awarded in the years after the bill. And there's a graph here. You can find it on my Substack. I might be wrong.substack.com, but I will describe it to you. The graph goes up. There are bars, and the bars on the left are little bars, and then the bars on the right are big bars. And now you understand what happened. The number of patents went up big time after the bill. Now, that is a pretty big deal because, as I have talked about before, U.S. emissions, in the grand scheme of things, barely matter. What matters is the technology, the technology that we invent and then sell to the rest of the world or, you know, don't. So the goal here is to develop clean technology that displaces high emissions technology and metrics about how things are going in the developed world really just measure our progress towards that goal. So the patent thing is encouraging. What other data do we have? Well, after the 2009 bill, the U.S. also stepped up our power production from wind and solar. Quite a bit. Between 2008 and 2012, the amount of U.S. electricity generated by wind increased by 250%. That is 55.4 terawatt hours to 138.7 terawatt hours. Over that same period, utility scale solar generation increased by a factor of five. That is 0.86 terawatt hours to 4.33 terawatt hours. Now, granted, we started from an unbelievably low level. So it would be fair to say that during that time, our non-hydro renewable power soared from basically nothing to next to nothing. Nonetheless, the rate of growth is impressive and it has continued at similar rates for the last decade. Here's another thing to look at. Overall U.S. GHG emissions from energy between 2008 and 2012, again, that's the time frame we're looking at because the bill was 2009, they went down. They went down quite a bit. There is another graph on my substack that shows that emissions from energy in 2012 were about 600 million metric tons beneath what we thought they were going to be, which is about a tenth of our total output. So again, not too shabby. Now, renewables are not the whole story here. The Great Recession is part of the story, and also the increased use of natural gas, which is cleaner than coal, everything is cleaner than coal, played a role. Estimates of how big of a role renewables played in beating our projections by 
again, about 600 million metric tons. Those projections are all over the map. The Breakthrough Institute attributed between 34 and 102 million metric tons of the gap to renewables, while the Rhodium Group estimated renewables role at about 270 million metric tons. So that is to say, renewables are probably responsible for somewhere between 5% and nearly half of that gap. Uh, you can see why characterizations like not too shabby are about the best I can do here. But let's back up and look at how this played out. The 2009 subsidies were supposed to spur research, and that did happen. They were supposed to reduce emissions, and that happened too. They also leveraged private investment, because some of the money came in the form of loan guarantees. And there's evidence that it did in fact boost private investments and one assumes that there were also learning effects of the type that Noah Smith talked about. As hard as it is to measure anything, or know anything, or to feel anything other than hopelessly confused for even a second in this big, muddled world of ours, it does look like the 2009 subsidies basically worked. Will the IRA subsidies be as effective as the 2009 round? That's the next question. My answer is, I don't know, maybe. I mean, yeah, sure, could be. Although, nah, they'll totally suck. That's also on the table. I can tell you a story as to why they'll be better, and I can tell you a story as to why they'll be worse. So in the interest of solving absolutely nothing, here are those two stories. The case as to why this round might be better basically rests on the idea that clean energy technology might have reached a critical mass. Renewables are already replacing fossil fuels. Gone are the days when green energy was just some pilot project at Stanford and some shit that Ed Bigley Jr. rigged up on his farm. You do not have to be a filthy hippie these days to be into green technology. You just have to be a capitalist. Wind, solar, batteries, small, modular, nuclear, these technologies are developing and advances in one area often make technology in another area more viable. In many ways, the future has arrived, and we may only be seeing the tip of the iceberg. On the other hand, <laughs> the case as to why these subsidies might do worse than their predecessors is because we might have already picked the low-hanging fruit. The big green energy win of the past decade is the plummeting price of solar, and my God, it did plummet, to which I say, neato. I mean, really. Nifty job, everyone. Dave and Buster's gift cards all around. But siting and intermittency, uh, those are still really big problems for solar. Solar, it should be noted, currently accounts for only about 2.8% of U.S. electricity. Despite this decade of awesome growth, it's still 2.8%. The point is, one breakthrough is not enough. We need a series of breakthroughs, and there is no guarantee that another one is right around the corner. So, what does all of this add up to? To me... It adds up to, eh, it's worth a shot. These subsidies are not my absolute favorite plan, 
but they are a legitimate plan. I do not need to take ayahuasca and trek into the desert to imagine this plan working. I should also mention that there are benefits of renewable energy investment, such as job creation, that I have not even addressed, and also things that the IRA does, like lower prescription drug costs, again, that's the bill, not the terrorist group, (laughs) that I have completely ignored. For analysis of those parts of the bill, you are going to need to find a podcast even more boring than this one. And I do ask myself, am I talking myself into liking these subsidies because they are the only item on the menu? And my answer is, I don't know, possibly. Unfortunately, I can't be right about the best way to do things and be hopeful about the future, so I have reluctantly decided to believe in humanity. Though, rest assured, if I am right that a pull would be better than a push, then the last thing you will hear before the sun bakes our bodies to a Cajun-style crisp will be me using my last ounce of energy to whisper, told you so. But in the meantime, subsidies ahoy. You can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, and this plan is absolutely good enough for me. And that's the episode. You know, I know enough about political podcasts to know that when a major piece of legislation passes, you are not supposed to do a podcast where your take is, I don't know, not my first choice, but pretty good. Probably, probably okay. I don't know. And yet that's what I've done. I guess my brand is wandering aimlessly through the gray area of unknowability. I hope that brand does it for you, because it seems to be what I'm doing here. Probably should have done a take that was either, this is going to save us, or this is the end of democracy as we know it. But fuck it, I'm not going to go back and record a second episode. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed hearing me solve little to nothing. As always, everything I do can be found at imightberwrong.substack.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on iTunes or whatever and share it with your friends or work acquaintances, which are not the same thing. Those people are not your friends. You are just friendly with some of them. But please do spread this free thing around if you like it. I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you very much for listening and bye for now.